for us. Father, we love you and we thank you for just your goodness and grace in each of our lives, Lord. Thank you for this series and, uh, Lord, how it has shaped and molded my heart and really challenged my faith in so many ways, and I hope that it has for these men in this room as well. And, Lord, I pray that as we open up the life of Enoch, or I'm sorry, the life of Abraham, God, that you would just uh, really stretch our faith, Father, open us up to his life and see what it was that Abraham uh, saw. Father, and I pray, God, that, that we would leave here men that are changed and excited, ready to follow you um, but more now than we ever have before. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just speak through me, uh, Father, to open hearts and minds. And, uh, Father, it would just be a good night of uh, fellowship and your word. Thank you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, all right, guys, so um, most of you all know is uh, we're in Hebrews chapter 11. Um, tonight we're going to be in Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 19, 8 through 19. So we got quite a bit to cover there. Um, but we're also going to be in Genesis as we have been the last couple weeks. We're also going to be in Genesis. Uh, we're going to be there in Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis 22. And so uh, you're going to want a Bible because we're going to be looking at some big chunks of Scripture tonight. The life of Abraham is, is quite unlike the life of Enoch. There's uh, tons and tons of chapters on Abraham, so it's going to be a little challenging to figure out uh, to, to what it is to cover, because we just can't cover, cover it all, no matter how fast I talk. So uh, it's definitely not going to be a 28-minute deal tonight, so go ahead and hope you guys uh, were full from dinner. So anyway, guys, let me give, uh, let's, let's go ahead and read this passage here, and then I'm going to give us a little bit of a recap, kind of set us where, where are we at in this, uh, this book, and then we'll jump into the life of Abraham. So if you would, pick up your Bibles. We're going to look here in Hebrews chapter 11 starting in verse 8, and we're going to go all the way through verse 19. Um, so here we go. Verse 8 says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Verse 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had been promised, or who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many of the stars of heaven, and as many as, in, as, and as, many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Man, that's kind of a tongue twister. Uh, verse 13, these all died in faith, speaking of the descendants, uh, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And so that's going to be our main text tonight. And uh, like I mentioned, Abraham, there's just a ton of stuff on him. But what we're going to do is we're going to use uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 19. We're going to use that as our outline for what we're going to cover and Abraham, because we just can't, there's just so much, we just can't cover everything. But let me give you a re recap here. So 
week one, we, we talked a little bit about what we're working on the basis of here. So we're working on the basis, the reality, that faith is a very nebulous term, right? We throw it around in Christian circles often, right? We say, man, if you have faith in this, if you have faith in that, but really, it, it's, it's one of those things that we really don't know. We've lost the weight of it. We, we don't really know what it means. We've lost the object. We've lost even what it is that we're putting our faith in, right? We can say, well, I, I can put my faith in God, but my goodness, what does that even mean? You know, and so that's kind of what we're working off of is that the reality that, man, faith is a nebulous term. And so we, we decided that we were going to have this series to kind of nail down for you and for us, what does it mean to have faith? And we described it this way. If, if you look back in, a, in Hebrews chapter 11, 1, this is how we described it. We said, the faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and it's the conviction of things unseen. And so we decided that faith then is taking what is intangible, what we know to be true about God, his character, his goodness, his sovereignty, his love, and we're bringing that into reality. And so faith is taking what is intangible, the very things that we can't see, that we can't touch, that we can't taste, that we can't smell, all of those things, and we're bringing it into reality, into real experience. And that is what we're, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about faith. And so in week one, Ken covered the life of Abel. And Abel's a unique guy because we have Abel and Cain, and there's really not a ton there on them either. But what we learned about Abel is that when he brought his sacrifice to the Lord, he trusted God fully for his provision. So he fully trusted God for his provision. He didn't hold anything back like we saw with Cain. Cain brought the fruits of his land, but we also know that he didn't uproot that, that tree, right? He actually brought the fruit of the land, whereas Abel brought all that he had. He wasn't looking for any gain off of that. He literally brought it to the Lord, and he didn't ask for anything more. And so that's what we see in Abel's faith. And um, Enoch that I did a couple weeks ago, we saw that Enoch's faith was really uh, in the way that he lived his life. Right? Enoch lived his life, lived a life that was pleasing to God. He walked with God. He understood what it meant to be a godly man versus an ungodly man, and God ultimately rewarded him for that. And then last week, we talked about Noah. And if you'll recall from last week, I don't remember a ton about last week. It's been a lot since uh, the summer class is kind of wearing me out. But um, if you remember from last week, uh, Noah's faith was placed in God's Word, right? It, it, it kind of came, came about in his obedience to what God was calling him to do. In this case, it was build the ark. And so the ark not only was a result of his faith, it was actually something tangible that he could see. And so Ken challenged us last week with, what in your life is tangible? What, what is your faith producing that you can go to in your life and say, man, this is what my faith is producing? What is tangible about your faith? And the neat thing that we saw about Noah in his life is that not only was it tangible for him, but it was also tangible for, man, generations. You know, I mean, there's no telling how long the ark actually stayed. And Ken mentioned uh, last week that they're actually building a replica of that. And so we even still kind of have, in some form or fashion, that as a replica of Noah's faith. And so he, again, he challenged us with what is it that's tangible about our faith? What do we have to show for our faith. 
And now this week, we're going to be talking about Abraham. Now, Abraham is kind of the rock star of faith in a lot of ways. I mean, he's, there's more written on Abraham, uh, but uh, like I said, we can't cover everything. We can't cover his entire life. But what we are going to do is we're going to cover three main aspects of Abraham's faith. And so the first thing that we're going to look at is we're going to look at Abraham's calling. That's really um, uh, going to be in Genesis 12. We're going to look at his period of waiting. Uh, so Abraham has a period of waiting that we're going to take a look at. And then uh, lastly, we're going to look at Abraham's period of testing. And so for the type A's in the room, that's the, that's the, uh, the outline that I'm going to be working off of. So you don't panic if I go off of that. But that's, that's where we're headed. Um, but really, guys, what we're going to see in the life of Abraham, this is kind of, and this is where I'm headed. So this is, I want you to tune your mind into this. And, and, and it's this, it's that Abraham's faith is always demonstrated by his faithful submission and obedience to God's word. For, a- for Abraham, what we're going to learn here is that faith and obedience are simultaneous, that you can't separate them, that really they're like two sides to the same coin. Uh, it's kind of like a rubber band, if you will. If you take one and you stretch one side, you, may, you can hold that thing, but eventually it's going to come with it, right? It's, it's that same kind of idea. Faith and obedience work together, that you can't have faith without obedience, right? Because you're not going to obey something that you don't believe in. You follow me? You're not going to obey something that you don't believe in, and your obedience is going to stretch your faith. So therefore, everything works together, and that's what we're going to see in the life of Abraham. And furthermore, it says, I wrote this, I said, Abraham believed God's word, and he laid his entire life and everything meaningful to him on the altar of God's promises to him. Right? And so Abraham believed God's word, and he laid his entire life and everything on it, everything meaningful to him in his life, he laid it on the altar of God's promises to him. And what we're going to see is that, man, that's what it's about. At the end of the day, everything that we learn this summer is about taking God as his word. I mean, we can boil this down to, man, what are we talking about here? We're talking about taking God at his word and trusting him. And that's essentially that's what Abraham did. And that's, as we unpack this and as we look at the life of Abraham, that's what we're going to be challenged with is, man, what does it look like to take God at his word and then run with it? So that, that's, that's where we're headed. Let me lay some groundwork here for you. Um, most of you guys, I'm sure, are pretty familiar with the life of Abraham. I think even most, you know, non-Christians are somewhat familiar with um, the life of Abraham. I mean, we all grew up singing the song, Father Abraham had many, many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. You guys with me? Y'all heard, y'all, y'all know the song? Yeah, yes, I did just sing. Yeah, I did. Uh, but yeah, we, we're familiar with that. And even non-Christians are, are familiar with the life of Abraham. But more often than not, we don't really know the significance of the life of Abraham. There's a lot there that we don't really understand. There's a lot there that we don't really know. So we're going to unpack that tonight. Uh, but just, just so you know, um, so Abraham is from Ur of the Chaldeans. Okay, that's where his original land, that's where he's from. He and his family, his dad is named Terah. He and his family moved up to uh, the land of Haran. And it's in Haran when God calls Abraham. Now, None of the texts say why in the world did Abraham move up to Haran, other than we can infer it has something to do more likely with uh, climate. Um, there, was, there was a famine in, the, famine in the land at that time, and so more likely than not, he's moved up there to, uh, for, for his good, right? For his sheep, he's a shepherd. And uh, so that's where, we're at, that's where we're at, is in the land of Haran. Uh, yeah, so we're in the land of Haran uh, when God calls him. Um, 
yeah, but so let's take, let's take a look at his calling, guys. If you would, turn with, you, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. And that's where we're going to be uh, here to look at. Genesis chapter 12. So like I said, Abraham has just moved to Haran. He's in Haran. That's where he's at when God calls him. And let's take, take a look here at verse 1. It says this. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now that's a pretty bold statement there. Just right off the bat in verse 1, that God is coming to Abraham and he's, he's asking him to do three things, right? It's a pretty radical calling. He says this. He says, Go from your country, your kindred, and your father's house. Essentially what he's saying is, I want you to leave behind everything that you know, everything that's familiar to you, all the comforts of home, everything that you possibly know, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. That I'm going to show you. He didn't tell him where the land is. He doesn't tell him what the land is. He simply just says, I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you. And so this is a pretty radical calling. Right? He says, I want you to leave your country. It'd be like you, you know, God coming to you and saying, hey, uh, so-and-so, I want you to leave Fort Worth, Texas. Now, I know that's kind of a sin for some folks, uh, but I want you to leave Fort Worth, Texas, and I want you to go clear across not only the, the country, but I want you to go clear across the globe. Now, that's pretty frightening calling, but that's what God's calling me to do. And not only that, but he's also calling me to leave his family calling him to leave his dad. Now, if you're familiar with um, that gener those gen the generations back in those days, man, that's pretty absurd. Really, you don't leave your family. You're a close-knit family. You feed off of each other. Um, you grow up together. Um, we see that in the life of um, Joseph. We're going to talk about that here in a few weeks, that Joseph's family all grows up together. Minus Joseph. Um, but that was kind of commonplace for those days. But God is saying, hey, I want you to leave your family, leave the comforts of home, and then I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. And here's something, there's just a, a unique um, thing that I found to be really, really interesting, is that we have no record after Noah, we have absolutely no biblical record that God was speaking to any prophet or anybody at this time. So, before Abraham and after Noah, we have no biblical record that God was speaking to anybody at this time. We have, we have nothing to show for that. Now, we're about 10 generations away. If I can do my math, which is, <laughs> I don't know how credible that is, but if I counted right, we're about 10 generations away from Noah. We're 10 generations of, for a flood. So God has not spoken to anybody that we know of, biblically speaking, since that time. And so when God comes to Abraham, I got a pretty good idea that he's going to listen. Wouldn't you? If nobody's heard from God, they didn't have the Word of God. So they don't have any way of, of working through, you know, hearing God speak to them or anything like that. They don't have the Holy Spirit at this time. We have the Holy Spirit. They don't. And so, man, when God speaks, I'm pretty sure that he's going, yep, I, I think I need to listen. And so, yeah, so that, that's, that's Abraham's calling, and uh, God's calling him to something radical. But guys, just to reiterate this, man, that God has just come to Abraham and told him to leave everything he knows, his entire livelihood. This is a radical calling. And the question is, is why? Why would God do that? And the simple answer is because God had something bigger for Abraham. You know, the same way that God has something bigger for you and I. That God doesn't call you and give you something disappointing. 
right? That God's calling, whether in our limited perspective, whether it, it surfaces in our mind or not, God is always calling us to something bigger, to something greater in the kingdom. And he's calling Abraham to something bigger. Look in verses 2 through 3. It says this, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham has gotten this radical call over his life, but then God gives him these three promises. And in these three promises, he doesn't give him any sort of roadmap for where he's taking him. He's still, we see he's still unknown to what it is that God's taking him to, but God does grace him with three specific promises. If you'll look there in the text, it says that I'm going to bless you with land. It says that at the end of verse 1, and then we also see that in uh, verse 7. We're going to take a look, that, look at that here a little bit later. He says that I'm going to bless you with, um, he's going to be a father of a great nation. Uh, he says the third one is that, he's, that all the nations are going to be blessed in him. So all the nations are going to receive their blessing in him. And so he's going to get land. He's going to get the promised land. We're all familiar with the promised land. He's going to get, um, he's going to be the father of a great nation. So he's going to receive an heir. And in that heir, all the nations of the world will come through that, uh, through that heir. And then he's going to receive a specific blessing. This, this blessing that we're going to find out a little bit more about here as we progress through uh, the lesson. So he gives him three things, but each, in each of these three promises, there's a huge catch. You know, it's almost as if, it's kind of like a Bowflex commercial. You guys know what I'm talking about? The Bowflex commercials, it's ridiculous, right? So it's, you know, you get this guy who's just chiseled up, you know, he's doing the Bowflex and he's jacked as can be. He's got more muscles than you and I can count. And then they say, you know, if you just do this for 15 minutes a day, oh, 15 minutes three times a day, after six weeks, you're going to look like this guy. But there's a catch, right? Because if we're honest, he's not taking into account the, uh, all the hard uh, work as far as diet. And if we were even more honest, all of the fake tanning that the guy's doing. Um, and all the stuff that goes behind the scenes, right? Well, it's the same way with these, these promises. God gives him these promises, which are lofty promises. But then there's a catch behind them. And we're going to learn one of the biggest catches to this whole thing tonight is the fact that we learn in Genesis 11 that, that Sarah is barren. She's unable to have children. So God has just come to Abraham and said, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and that you're going to have this heir, and this heir, you're going to have as many children as the sand on the seashore, which is, again, a pretty lofty promise. Yet, what about the reality that Sarah's barren? And not only that, but they're, they're far in age, too. That the reality is, is that they can't have children, but yet God has still promised him that they will. And so each of these promises, they have a, um, they have a catch. Um, but how does Abraham respond? Look with me in uh, verses 4 through 5. We're going to see how Abraham responds. I think this is amazing. In verse 4 it says, So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. So Abraham just went. He didn't ask any questions. He didn't say, God, well, well, would you tell me more? How many of us have done that? You know, you know God's calling you, and you're like, but God, you know, if you just line out a few more of the details, yeah, then I'd go, right? Yeah, I do it all the time. I do it. We all do it all the time. But Abraham doesn't do that. We have, no, we, have, we have no sense that Abraham does that. He just simply says, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you that you know what you're doing, and I'm going to follow you. And so Abraham follows him. 
And then look with me in the next sentence. And it says, Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, let me just uh, kind of mention this here, guys. Abraham was 75 years old. Abraham was 75 years old when God calls him. Now, if this steps on your toes, I'm sorry, but guys, there's absolutely no such thing as Christian retirement. No such thing. Now, we may have that in the secular world, but guys, let me just tell you that there's absolutely no such thing as Christian retirement. Guys, God can use you at the age of 75. God can use you at the age of 85, at 95, at 100. Until he takes you home, he has called you for a specific purpose for you to be on mission for his glory and your joy. Guys, God has purpose for you. Every day counts. Every day is great. There is great purpose in your life. God called Abraham at the age of 75. If you don't think that God can call you at the age of 75, you're wrong. Look at Ken's dad. Ken's dad is one of the best examples I can think of. The man is 95 years old, 94 I think he was, and he's still traveling all over the globe, you know, miserable, as sick as can be, but he said, man, God's got, me, got a calling on my life, and I've got to go exercise that. And so he traveled all over the world at the age of 95. God, God, guys, God can still use you, no matter how old you are. It doesn't matter if you're 10. It doesn't matter if you're, uh, man, if you're still breathing. God is going to use you. And we see that, that God uses Abraham. And we're going to see it gets even worse in the next couple of, of uh, chapters, is that, that it, not only is he 75, but, man, we're going to get even heavier into Abraham's age and what God does with him. But, so Abraham was 75. Look with me in verse 5. It says, And Abraham took Sarah his wife. So he's, remember, he's, he's following the Lord. He's following God's promises. And so Abraham took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all of their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. And so again, guys, simply Abraham heard the calling. He trusted that God knew better than he did, even when he didn't have a roadmap even when he didn't have all the details planned out. But God was faithful in Abraham's life, and Abraham just trusted the Lord. He trusted that he knew better than he did, and so Abraham went, and so they enter into, they're, they're leaving Haran. He's got his family. He's, think about it this way. He's packing up, um, you know, his wife. I don't know what in the world. I guess they just walked. I really don't know how they did it, but you can imagine all the journey. They're leaving everything that they know. They're leaving all the comforts of home and saying, Lord, we're just going to trust you, and they enter into Canaan, and then guys, look at how, look at what what happens when they enter into Canaan? It says, uh, says this, And when they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of she at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at the time, the Canaanites were, Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. You guys, you catch anything in that? Because if you're looking closely, Abraham shows up to the land that God has promised him, and there's already people there. <laughs> How frustrating, right? You, you give up everything you know, you pack up your bags, you go to the land that God has promised you. God has promised there's going to be a land when you get there. He shows up, and somebody else is already there. Somebody's already there. There's already somebody there. And Abraham is forced into a place where he literally has to trust in the character of God. 
when all of his circumstances, when everything else seems to be a wash, Abraham, all he had left was to trust in the faithfulness of God, that God was not going to leave him astray. Because he's showing up, he's expecting to take possession of this land, and it's full. You know, everything in him is telling him, man, let's pack our bags, let's go back on home, let's go back to the comforts of home, right? But that's not what he does. Abraham, look at how Abraham responds, even in that moment. It says, at the time the Canaanites were in the land, then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring I will give this land. So what does Abraham do? So Abraham built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Abraham worshiped. When even when the circumstances weren't ideal, and he showed up, and he was, I'm, I'm sure he was disappointed, he builds an altar to the Lord, and he worships the Lord. Now, I can't help but think, you know, when we are disappointed with our circumstances, when things aren't quite going out, going the way uh, that you would think that they would go, and we show up, and we're expecting God to come through, and maybe he comes through in a different way. You know, Abraham can't see what's going on here. We can't always see what's going on here. But how many of us worship the Lord in those cases? Man, it's easy to worship the Lord when things are going well. Man, it's hard to worship the Lord when things are going bad. But man, Abraham worshiped. And look with me how this passage finishes. You know, so from there, he moved to the hill country on the east side of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west side and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going to the Negev. Guys, even when his circumstances weren't ideal, not only did he worship the Lord, but he kept going forward. He didn't look backwards. He didn't look backwards at what he left. He just kept moving on to the God's promise. You know, this, we have kind of labeled the men's ministry after a, a verse in Philippians 4 that says, man, forgetting what Paul's writing, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward the goal of the upper call of Christ Jesus, our Lord. And that's what, that's what Abraham does here. When he shows up to the land and he's bummed out because, okay, he's got one of two options. He's either, I'm, I'm not going to trust God's faithfulness or I'm going to lean on my own understanding and be disappointed and distraught. But what does he do? He worships the Lord, and then he keeps moving forward. Men, we are men who move forward. In the Christian life, man, there's no room for looking back. We've got to be men who look forward. You know, I've heard uh, one of my preaching profs has always said that, man, your next sermon is always your best one. And it is. But every time you get up there, the next one is always your best one. Same thing for you guys, man. Your next day is always your best one. Now let's forget about what lies behind and let's move forward. That's what Abraham did. Um, and so, guys, uh, let me, let's, and, and essentially, you know, when he, he is placed in a, in a place to worship the Lord, but he's also put in a place where he has to wait on God. So not only is he worshiping the Lord, but now he's in a place of waiting. It's like, okay, God, well, here's the land that you promised me. I don't get it, so now what do I do? So he's in a time of waiting. And so let's look at Abraham's time of waiting. If you would, uh, turn back with me to, to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll be in verses 9 through, uh, um, I'm sorry, 13 through, um, no, yeah, 9 through 10. I'll wait for you to get there. See, this is good, right? It, it slows me down, right? Yeah. You can laugh. That's okay. All right, look with me here in verse 9 of chapter 11. 
It says, By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You know, Abraham had a really unique understanding of reality. You know, Abraham recognized that this land, although it is promised him, was not his home. We see that here in the text, that although that God has come to him and made this bold promise to him, that, that, yeah, absolutely, God's promised this thing to me, but at the end of the day, this land is not my home. This physical land is not my home. He looked around at his circumstances and realized that, man, he's homeless in a land that's promised to him. You know, Abraham has pitched a tent. It's kind of like Chris Farley. I mean, he's, he's down by the river, you know, homeless down by a river, living in a river, or living in a van down by the river. Let me get that straight there. You know, I mean, that's essentially, that's where Abraham finds himself. You know, he's got this land that's promised to him, and he's homeless in a tent. He's, I mean, can you picture this? He's sitting up on a hill. He's up on the Mount of uh, the Negev, and he's looking out over the land that's promised to him. And these guys are, they're, they're having parties. They're living comfortably. And Abraham's going, you've got to be kidding me. I'm in a tent. How many of you guys like tent camping? Well, there's a few of you. Okay, so most of you don't. I'm going to say that you're not lying. So most of you don't. So you really understand that if you're stuck out in a tent while everybody else is living comfortably, then you kind of understand what Abraham's wrestling with, right? He doesn't have any bathrooms. He doesn't have a shower. But man, these guys are living comfortably. And Abraham has left all the comforts of home. You know, in, in, in Abraham's mind, I wrote this. I thought this was kind of interesting. You know, Abraham was put in a place where everything around him tells him that his calling is a hoax that God's word is not true, and that he ought to turn back around and head back to the land of his father, head back to the land of comfort. But what does Abraham do, guys? Abraham remains faithful. His faith is no longer on his circumstances, but rather on the future reality and promise to come. Guys, when our circumstances aren't right, when they're not necessarily what we want them to be, man, it's, it's about faithfulness. It's about faithfulness to what God has called you to. Abraham was faithful even when it didn't seem right. You know, we, uh, this idea of, of, of not believing that God exists and not that we can trust his word. You know, in, in his life, everything around him, you know, just like Enoch and just like uh, Abel, I mean, he's, he doesn't have, have the word of God. He doesn't have Christian community. He doesn't have a men's ministry to come hang out with. So he's working on his own. I mean, it's him and his family, and that's it. And he's the sole leader of that family. You know, so he doesn't have anything to go off of. He doesn't have anybody to encourage him, challenge him in his faith. And so everything in his world, the flood has just taken place 10 generations ago. And we know because of the sinfulness of man that it's, it's just as bad, right? And so in, in all of his circumstances, everything around him is telling him that God doesn't exist and that his word can't be trusted. Now, is that not something pretty similar to what we deal with today? You know, are we not living in a culture and a society that tells us really two things, that God does not exist and that his word can't be trusted? I, I mean, I literally saw this the other day. Uh, we were laying in bed and we were watching TV and, I, and there's some commercial that came on. And it was it literally a guy apologized in this show for insinuating that God was real. And I thought, wow. And we really are in that place. We're in a place where, that, where people and are believing that God does not exist and his word can't be trusted. Think about this. Think about abortion. Uh, guys, we are so willing to just throw away the very beings that are created in the image of God. N much less it's murder. 
But even more so, marriage. So we can talk about marriage as well. We have redefined marriage as a culture. Uh, we have, uh, we've, and therefore, we've redefined what family is, too, which brings on a whole other topic of issues. And we can go in all day on all the different ways that, uh, that our culture is believing these lies. I even saw, I read an article the other day. It was a really good article, but it's just really sad is what it was. But it's, get this, so it's actually normative for Christians, okay? Meaning it's normal for Christians to live together and sleep together before they're married. That's Christians. So we're not even talking about unbelievers. We can, we can give unbelievers the credit that they just don't know any better. They, they, they don't know any better. But for Christians, we know better because we have the Word of God to tell us. So what does that tell us? It tells us that, man, we're living in a world where we're believing the lie that God doesn't exist and that His Word can't be trusted. Yeah, we, we no longer live in that world. You know, Abraham believed that God, was, that God existed, and he was convinced that God would fulfill his promise, and that these promises were not made by human hands, but by God himself. You know, God's words for Abraham weren't something that are often just thrown in the back seat of our car only to be frequented, you know, once a week, if that. You know, they were really, for Abraham, God's words, men, were something to be cherished, to be hold, held on to, and to be believed. You know, and to kind of, kind of go back to my rant a minute ago, just because I, yeah, I can, um, and I have a microphone and I can, but guys, I was thinking through this, this last week is that, guys, the problem is not with our culture, and our problem is not even with our society that we're living in. You know, if your hope and your joy is is ebbing and flowing, if it's wavering on the political culture that we're in, don't get me wrong, it's pretty rough, but if your hope and your joy is wavering on those two things, can I just suggest to you that your hope is misplaced? That more, more likely than not, you've got a misplaced hope. You, are, you too, like myself, are believing a lie. And here's the problem. Here's, here's the real problem, and don't get me wrong, we've got some pretty wild stuff going on. But guys, the real problem is not with our political uh, arena. It's not with our culture. The problem is with us. The problem is, is that we have believed a lie that we serve a small God. We have believed a lie, and I don't know where it started. I don't know if it just started with the sinfulness of man. But we are believing a lie that we serve a really small God. We have forgotten about Romans 13 that says that God specifically places all of our leaders in charge over us. We have forgotten about that lie. We can look at Rome, the greatest empire on the earth, the very empire that wanted to, just to wipe Christianity off the planet. Man, can I just remind you that Rome sits in ruins. Ancient Rome sits in ruins now. Now tell me we don't serve a mighty God. Tell me that we don't serve a big God who is much bigger than our political agendas. It's much bigger than all the mess that's going on with that. It's much bigger with, even than the reality that we live in a world where people don't believe that God exists and that, he, uh, that his word is, can, can be trusted. Guys, God can break through that, and he breaks through it every day, but it's a matter of us believing it. It's a matter of us taking God at his word and saying, God, I trust who your character is. I trust your sovereignty, that you're in control, even when I, I think I am and I'm not. Because, guys, the reality is, is that God is in control. And we have to trust that as men in the 21st century, because if we don't, who else is? If we don't believe that, 
It ain't happening. It ain't happening. And God doesn't need us, but he wants to use us. And we get the joy of being a part of that. And how exciting. Guys, the Christian life is an adventure, isn't it? It's an adventure, man. It's not boring. It's not about being on the sidelines. It's an adventure. It was an adventure for Abraham. You know, like I said, God's words weren't something just to be thrown away around, man, but they were something to be cherished. They were something to be loved and to be obeyed. Um, but Abraham, they were looking for a city that was to come. They were looking to a city that had eternal foundations, not something that was the here and the now. It's so easy for us to get sidetracked by the here and the now. But man, Abraham didn't. Abraham stood firm on the reality that there was more to come. Man, that there was a heavenly reality. That there were two realities. They believed that there were two realities at play. Guys, that there was a heavenly one and that there was an earthly one. And they chose to believe in the heavenly one. And we have that same challenge today is that we too must follow in the footsteps of Abraham and believe that, man, there's something more than this world. To not get caught up in the silliness of this world, man, but to believe that God has prepared a place for us and to hold on to that truth and to allow that truth to bring us through. He was looking for a city to come and his, his faith compelled him to look adversity in the eye and obey even when everything around him didn't, wasn't following him. You know, people say that, you know, a leader is somebody who people follow. Now, Abraham was a leader, and I guarantee you, he was looking behind him, and there was nobody following him. <laughs> there was nobody following him, because it's a, it's a uh, cross-cultural view. It's a cross-cultural view to believe that there's something more. But Abraham did anyway. Guys, and here's, the, here's, here's kind of a kicker. It's going to be 500 years or so before any of Abraham's descendants ever received the land. <laughs> so Abraham shows up to the land of Canaan. Not only is it possessed by somebody else, but his descendants are not going to see it for some 500 years. It's not going to be till Joshua 24 that Joshua and the Israelites storm into the promised land and take it and literally stand on the promise of God. It's, it's well into 500 years. We're looking at generations before but Abraham believed that it was going to come true. And so he stayed faithful. And guys, look with, me, look with me here in verses 13 through 16 of Hebrews 11. It says, These all died in faith, speaking of the descendants of Noah, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the, of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to, to, to return. And this is great in verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I love that. That they desire a better country. Men, we ought to desire a better country. One that doesn't, uh, that can't be destroyed. You know, where, rot, where rust and moth cannot destroy. Guys, we ought to desire a better country. Guys, there's so much more than this. Abraham believed that. You know, the generation of Abraham and shortly thereafter never received the promise, but yet they died in faith believing that it was true. And they lived in this period of waiting. They believed that this world was not their home and even more importantly, they believed this. They believed that there were two realities at play. 
There was an earthly temporary reality and a heavenly eternal reality. As a result, they believed that this world was temporary and could never offer them what they truly desired. This world and all its promises were empty. They were all empty. They believed that only, the only true satisfaction can come from God and in His promises. They believed that true satisfaction came from God in His Word. These are men who are left on promises they don't even have a roadmap for. We can't hate to call the Bible a roadmap, and I kind of do too, but the reality is, is we do have something that tells us what's next. We do have something that gives us the next steps, that gives us something to hope for. All they had was a promise that seemed to be as though it wouldn't be fulfilled, yet they still believed. Man, we've got to look, we've got to take this word, and we've got to allow it to penetrate our lives. We've got to live based on this word. Guys, that faith and obedience work together. That if you're not reading this word, if you're not learning about God and his character, then where's your faith? This is how you grow in your faith. This is how you challenge yourself in your faith. But not only that, obedience is how you challenge your faith. To being obedient to God. Then does it take a lot of faith to share the gospel with somebody? It does for me. I mean, it's not something that comes just natural. You know, I don't know if what people think that pastors just have like supernatural abilities to go and share the gospel, but man, it's, it's hard for me. It's not natural for me to go and say, hey man, I want to tell you about Jesus. But God calls us to do it. And when you do do it, does it stretch your faith? When you do step out in faith, does it stretch your faith? Absolutely, it does. Obedience stretches your faith. It stretched Abraham's faith because he was walking forward. He kept going forward to the land of the promise, even when it wasn't in his possession. So that they believed, um, guys, that there was two realities at play. And Abraham trusted that God was real and that he would deliver in spite of everything that was around him. He was willing to give up everything on this reality. Everything. Even his own son. He was literally willing to give up everything even his own son. Now, I think this story of, of uh, Abraham and Isaac is one that's easily glossed over because we've heard it so many times, we kind of get the, the gist of it. But guys, let me just reiterate this. Abraham is willing to sacrifice his own son. Look with me in Genesis 22. We're going we're gonna to take a look at this. told you we were going to be flipping around a lot here. Now, while you're turning there, let me give you a, a little context just to kind of jog your memory here. So, don't forget here that um, Sarah is barren. We learned that in Genesis 11. Sarah is barren, um, but not only is, is Sarah barren, but that's still the promise that God has given them, right? So, God has still given them a promise. And here's the crazy thing about the fact that Sarah's barren, is that in those days, children were a prized possession. They weren't something that was easily thrown out. They, they, they represented a legacy. They were helpful on the, the family farm or shepherding or whatever. Um, they represented a heritage to be, to be taken, right? The, to be um, taken on to the next generation. Um, and crazy enough, they would have felt shame for not having children in those days. So the fact that Abraham and Sarah did not have children would have brought them shame and even somewhat disgrace because that was, um, I've got to be careful how I say this because some people get, get angry with this, but um, 
that it kind of represented a, that was really not their, pri- that's not women's primary purpose, don't, don't hear that, but it was something that was extremely important in their life, is that you would marry, they would, you know, birth you an heir, and so the fact that she couldn't do that, she would have felt shame, yet, and she couldn't do it. You know, but in Genesis 21, God fulfills his promise, doesn't he? Yeah, God fulfills his promise in that he gives, he gives them a child. He gives them Isaac. And then look, look here with me in, in, in uh, verse 22. Starting one, we're going to go in uh, verses 1 through 5. It says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer them there as a burnt offering, on the mountains of which I should tell you. Verse 3, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood of the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now guys, I think that there's really, uh, there's really three things that are significantly important to understanding this story. The first one is in verse, uh, verse 2. He says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a sacrifice, a burnt offering. Because he's saying, take your only son, the son that is the very promise of, um, of God. You know, Abraham at this point is somewhere around 95 years old. Uh, Sarah is also well up in age. Hebrews actually tells us that Abraham was considered good as dead. So not only did God call Abraham at the age of 75, but now he's giving him a son. And God's very word says that he was as good as dead. And so, essentially, we see that Isaac is, he is the promise. He represents the promise that Abraham has spent, what, 20 years waiting on. He has spent 20 years waiting on this promise. All of a sudden, God blesses him with that in verse 21. And now he's saying, I want you to go sacrifice the son. And not only the son, but the son in whom you love, the son in whom you cherish, and your only son. He represented the very promise of God. The second thing is in, um, goodness gracious, verse 3. Look in verse 3. He says, So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. How does Abraham respond? When God calls him to sacrifice his son, how does he respond? He rose early. Anybody find that to be odd? I mean, if you're like me, you're thinking, God, you're sick. Why in the world would you call Abraham to do this? This is, your very, this is the very promise of God, yet you are calling him now to go and sacrifice the very promise. Why would you do that? And then two, why in the world would Abraham rise early? How many of us would rise early to something that would literally be the hardest thing that you and I could ever imagine, that Abraham could have ever imagined, was so obedient that you were able to rise early and go. Abraham arose early and he went. And the third thing to to note here is look in verse 5. Let's see. And he says this. All right, yeah, verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young men, the men who he, went, who brought, he brought with him, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. 
in this passage, Abraham says that he and Isaac were going to go up to the mount to worship. What else does he say? We're coming back. Man, does that give you chills? I just got chills. We're coming back. Abraham was so confident that God was either going to do one of two things. He was going to either uh, provide him another sacrifice or in Hebrews uh, eleven nineteen, either that or he was going to raise him from the dead. That's heavy, man. Abraham was so confident in his God. He had such a big God that he believed that he was either going to do one of two things, that he was either going to offer him a sacrifice or, or provide a substitute or he was going to raise him from the dead. I don't know about you, but my faith in that. I'm ashamed to say it. Abraham believed that God was so big that he could raise him from the dead. And he, nobody had seen this at this point, but he believed so firmly in God's promise that he would figure out a way. Right? He, figured, he, he believed that God was going to do it no matter what. Abraham considered that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. And why? Why didn't God test Abraham? Was it for God? Did God really, you think God really needed that test? I think God knew what he was going to do, right? That was from Abraham. As brutal as this story is, it was for Abraham's good. God pulled Abraham through this so that Abraham could see how big God was and how faithful God was and how sovereign God was. God knew what he was doing, and Abraham trusted him. Guys, how many times do we go through seasons of suffering and pain when we're pleading with God to get us out of it? Because 1 Corinthians says that, man, in our suffering, God is working a weight of glory in our suffering that is waiting for us in heaven, that there is great purpose in our suffering, that it's not meaningless because our suffering is not meaningless. It's not meaningless for Abraham that there's a point to our suffering. In this case, Abraham was shown how big God was. What if it takes suffering? What if it takes suffering to wake us up to show us how big God is? Would you be willing to suffer? And I don't like suffering any more than anybody else in this room. I don't like pain. I don't. But what if it showed you how big God is? is. Would you be willing to go through it? And Abraham did. He believed that God would raise him from the dead. <laughs> but here's the deal, guys. Here's the key to this thing, and I love this. Abraham knew that the move was on God. He, knew, he wasn't empty-handed here. Abraham knew that the move was on God. This wasn't a gentleman's agreement. God can't lie. There are things that God cannot do. As big as he is, there's things that God can't do. One of which is he can't go against his character. God can't lie. Abraham knew that God couldn't lie. He trusted God's character. And as a result of what he knew about God, Abraham risked everything, even his own son, whom he deeply loved on the very altar of God's mercy. What we see in the life of Abraham is this. This is, just sums it all up. His faith was only as good as God's faithfulness to his promise. Abraham's faith was only as good as God's faithfulness to his promise. That's what brought Abraham through this. He trusted and believed in God's character. 
Guys, as great of a story as that is, it's probably my favorite story in the entire Bible. Because it's only a mere shadow. It's only a mere shadow of what we have in Jesus. See, Ephesians 2 says that each and every one of us, you, me, everyone in this room, personally, not corporately, but individually, we are born into death. That apart from God's work, man, we're dead, spiritually. But the good news, guys, is that, that God gave a substitute. We were in the place of Isaac, on the chopping block. And just at the right time, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. He is our substitute. He is the promise. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that these men were waiting for. They had no idea what they were waiting for. But Jesus is the very promise that these men were looking for, that they were hoping for. He's the eternal reality that they were looking for. And he's the eternal reality that we're looking for tonight. He's the, re the, the eternal reality that we're looking for tomorrow and for eternity. Guys, this is what this story is about. This is what Abraham's life is about. His calling was about Jesus. His waiting is about Jesus. And his testing is about Jesus. That's it. That's what it's all about. Guys, this is God's promise for us. No matter what, that this life is not all there is. That there's more offered to you by faith. The question is, is are you going to take that opportunity? Are you going to take the opportunity by faith and live this adventure? Or are you going to sit on the sidelines and think because you're 75, you can't be called? Man, God can call you, and he will if you're willing. Even if it's picking up the phone and calling people and just checking on them and praying for them. God can use you even if you can't walk. God can use you if you can't talk. There's absolutely nothing that God can't use you for. God can use you, men. Uh, may God just bless this group of guys. Let me pray for us. Uh, guys, just so you know, discussion questions are there. Um, you know, feel free to have a frenzy. Um, some good questions on there. But really, really press through those, man. Uh, I want you guys to, to be stretched tonight and your faith to grow as a result of this. So let me pray for you, and then we'll call it a night. Father, we love you. We thank you for your faithfulness, God. We thank you for your character and uh, God, the fact that you don't leave us or you don't forsake us in this world, God, even when you call us, you don't leave us. God, there's no other religion, there's no other faith that believes this. God, that you're alive. Every other religion, their God is dead. But you are alive and you're a big God and you're bigger than anything that we can imagine. God, but only if we can have faith in you, would you awaken faith in us? Would this group of men, Lord, be men who are game changers? God, who don't sit on the sideline, but are eager and waiting for you to call. Lord, empower us by your spirit to do what you have called us to, even in when the circumstances don't seem right. Father, it's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen.